I see mainly patients on the on the inpatient side as a hospitalist, so I'm there for labor and delivery. But you know, believe it or not, even in this day and age, there are a lot of women that don't get prenatal care. Their only point of contact with healthcare is when they drop into the hospital at different points in their pregnancy with a complication. I'm often there for a longer shift and I have time to talk to patients. You can't always have time, but sometimes you really do. Uh, I see a lot of times in an office practice, doctors are very quick to write a prescription and go on to the next patient. I have time to talk to patients. So some of the most common things that come up that we see, hyperemesis, so nausea and vomiting in pregnancy, acid reflux is very common that we see in patients, high blood pressure in pregnancy is very common. All of these things have a lifestyle medicine component. And luckily, we get the time to start talking about these things without just writing a script and moving on. Welcome to the Plant-Based DFW Podcast Weekly Show with Dr. Riz and Maya, a show broadcasted from the Dallas-Fort Worth area that focuses on lifestyle medicine. This is the use of evidence-based lifestyle therapeutic approaches, such as a whole food plant-based diet, regular physical exercise, adequate sleep, and stress management to treat, prevent, and oftentimes reverse lifestyle-related chronic diseases that are all too prevalent. Every week, they feature a guest who speaks on one of these lifestyle medicine pillars. This show is for you, the person who is seeking to improve your overall wellness and quality of life. So whether you are driving, walking, or relaxing at home, we hope this show will provide you one more tool for your wellness toolbox. Let's meet today's podcast guest. Dr. John Paul McHugh is an OB-GYN who has been in practice for many years. He is a fellow of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, a diplomat of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and the co-chair of the Women's Health Interest Group for the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. In this episode, we talk about a couple of exciting things that are happening in the Women's Health Interest Group for ACLM. In case you did not know, I am also in this group and my goal has been to help showcase several of the members who speak on women's health. Coming this fall will be the Women's Health Lifestyle Medicine textbook with Dr. Nancy Erickson as the lead editor. You may recall that we've had Dr. Erickson on the show a couple of times. I will add the links to her episodes in the show notes. She and Dr. John McHugh recently spoke at the American College of OBGYN's annual meeting with Dr. Nancy Erickson speaking on postpartum care and Dr. John McHugh addressing physicians about the importance of exercise. The Women's Health Group will have their own workshop for the third year in a row during the Lifestyle Medicine Conference in November called Living Your Best Life. To learn more about the conference, visit lmconference.org. And to learn more about Dr. John McHugh's Facebook group called Women's Health Lifestyle Medicine, I will include a link in the show notes. And as always, thanks for listening. So welcome, Dr. John Paul McHugh. Great. Thank you so much, Maya. I really, really appreciate getting this time to talk and share some ideas. And I have to admit, I've been catching up on you and Dr. Riz's podcast, and it's really wonderful the work that you're doing for the community. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. And actually, I'm looking forward to learning more about your role with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. You play a very significant role with the Women's Interest Group. Um, Maybe you can kind of tell our listeners a little bit about what the interest group is about, and then we can move on to talking about more your specialty and, of course, lifestyle medicine. 
Thanks so much, Maya. So um, as you mentioned before, I'm an OBGYN. I'm trained. I've been in practice for, for many years. And I've always been interested more in wellness than in illness. And a lot of my colleagues really feel the same way as well. The hard part that we're stuck with is the system sometimes aren't set up to really provide wellness. Sometimes we as doctors only get involved when there's illness. So I was lucky enough a few years ago uh, to be invited to have coffee with a woman named Dr. Michelle Tollefson, who's in Denver. Uh, and Michelle Tollefson said to me, John, I'm thinking about forming a group in lifestyle medicine, really focused on some of the issues that we face. She's more focused on um, gynecologic issues. And I've been more interested in obstetrics and delivery. And we decided to uh, partner together. And she created the um, Women's Health Lifestyle Medicine Member Interest Group. We're now up to about 200 members all across the country, actually all across the world. We have some people in Nigeria and London and uh, whatnot joining us as well. Uh, and we're really not just about physicians, not just about OBGYNs. We have people who are health coaches and nutritionists, some members of the general public who are really interested in these issues come and join us as well. It's such an important group. And what uh, can you tell us a little bit about what an interest group is and what is the goal with it all? What um, has come about with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine um, has been that different people have different perspectives and different issues that they're interested in changing. A little bit surprising that women's health came along relatively late in the game. We didn't form this group for a while. Uh, many of the initial issues that uh, came up were involving diabetes and hypertension. Uh, some of those diseases have some aspects that are identical in women, but some aspects that are very different. Um, and also how these diseases manifest are in pregnancy and menopause are all very different. So we formed this group, but there are about 20 different member interest groups. There's a group specifically covering lifestyle medicine in the military. I mean, wouldn't we want our troops to really <laughs> have the best care they could get as well? Definitely. The majority of our listeners are actually women. And as we know, women sort of tend to take the initiative towards wellness and bringing in meditation, yoga, and things like that into their homes. And so I think it's so important to kind of continue to provide this kind of information for women in terms of knowing how to use lifestyle medicine to prevent conditions or to kind of reverse or halt some of the conditions that they currently may have. Um, so the interest group is like bringing together a lot of different perspectives and resources to see then how we can get this information out to the average person and as well as patients, right? Exactly true. And you know, you brought up a really, really good point. I, I do have to say, I'm kind of just at the tail end of writing an editorial for the American Journal of Lifestyle Medicine on women's health and lifestyle medicine. And myself and Cindy Geyer, who's the co-chair, we've really focused on this issue that you raised, which is women have a very unique role in that they're very often caregivers for the family, often raising children. And if we can help women understand the benefits of lifestyle medicine, we can really change several generations. And I think that's the goal for all of us. There are also a lot of resources on the uh, website for the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Um, can you get it? Kind of give us a little bit of an overview. I do touch on the, sub the subject a lot of the modalities that uh, comprise lifestyle medicine, but can you just kind of review that for us a little bit? Sure. So I think what we want to do is really always make sure that we talk about all six pillars of lifestyle medicine. So often, if you go online, there's a lot of information, unfortunately, a lot of false information about diet. 
There's a lot of information that you can pick up at the gym regarding exercise, but I think we as patients and even myself, I didn't know what was right and what wasn't right. It's really hard to know what's right. So we talk about diet exercise. I've been really fascinated with sleep, especially sleep in OBGYN. It turns out I'm very involved with the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. We make the prenatal form that almost every woman in America gets when they have a prenatal intake, and there are no questions about sleep. But we know it has a huge impact in pregnancy, and we need to change that. I continue to hear how important sleep is. And do you find that women during their pregnancies tend to struggle with sleep or just in general? Absolutely. Not only do I find it, but we've written a few papers on the topic and we find it such an important topic. And unfortunately, we have a cultural bias where we sort of say, well, that's normal. Of course, you're not sleeping, you're pregnant. Uh, and that's really not true. It doesn't need to be that way. There's a lot of things we can do and a lot of healthy, natural things we can do to help women sleep better during pregnancy. This is so important. I love the whole self-care perspective of lifestyle medicine. Um, but I can see how sleep could be a, an issue for any woman in general. And then as soon as she starts having family, then she's, again, expected to sort of handle all the, all the things that are happening in her home. So it's a lot of stress. Absolutely. And that's really an important point. And that's one of the pillars as well. I was actually just on a talk. We did a talk for all the OBGYNs in the state of California on their own wellness. And this was the chief wellness officer at Kaiser, California. And he had a very interesting comment. He said he believes 90% of wellness is mental health. If you have great mental resilience and low stress, all of these other things become easier. If you're less stressed, you eat better. If you're less stressed, you sleep better. If you're less stressed, you find time for exercise. Mm -hmm. So how can we get at that core issue that you addressed? Mm, yes. Really, really important. I'd love to come back to that subject a little bit more um, and hear about women and mental health. You were talking about nutrition, I think exercise and sleep. We should also talk about stress, which is an important issue. We should talk about substance abuse. And it's interesting when I give this talk to physicians, they sort of kind of nod off of, you know, I don't do anything like that. But what is a substance, right? Is our phone, do we get addicted to our cell phones sometimes, right? And sometimes do we check them late at night, which wakes us up and stresses us out. So we should look at those addictions. I do have to admit, I do have one addiction, which is coffee uh, that I can't kick. But we also know that coffee can be something that you can enjoy in moderation if you use it right. You know, mm -hmm. and it does have some antioxidant properties. So substances, stress, and connectedness as well. And that's something that we know the data, I'm sure you know the data as well, how often someone dies within a year of the death of their spouse or partner, right? So we should really be looking at social connectedness as it's for its impact on health. Speaking of mental health, what kind of resources are available for women to kind of cope with that? Yeah, no, it's a very, very difficult, difficult process to get involved in. And I think step one is just, as you said, admitting the issue, right? We find that a lot of times women feel the need to be super mom and feel like if they if they bring up an issue, something's wrong with them. Someone else can do it even better. Uh, what did I hear some woman say one time? We can't all be Martha Stewart and kind of make all of our arts and crafts at home all day long, right? We have to, at some point, admit that there's an issue. One of the ones that I find is really important is after you admit the issue, is it possible to bring in some help and bring in some support? And I find a lot of people don't do that. Uh, a good friend of mine who's a business executive actually hired a plant-based chef for her. She didn't have the time to actually do cook the meals. And she was finding she and her son were both not eating well. And she brought in some support for herself. Sometimes you can bring in family members or partners to do that. 
We also find that meditation has a really, really powerful impact. And unfortunately, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I can speak for myself. I feel like every time I do it, I'm doing it wrong. But when I look at it in the aggregate, I find that I am getting benefit from it at the same time, even if it's not perfect. I will commend a book um, that is on the ACLM website. And there is actually a master class as well by a man named Matthew Walker uh, called Why We Sleep. And I think it's really important. There are sections on caffeine and alcohol. And I think it's important for us to be cognizant of these impacts if we're having any problems sleeping. It's become sort of tricky, especially the, I want to say, the last year and a half or <laughs> as we're going into a, the second year of uh, being a little bit isolated. So I'm curious um, about your work. How did you know that you wanted to choose this field of obstetrics and gynecology? So that's a great, great question. Um, I had been, uh, my parents were both teachers, both school teachers, uh, and I had been dead set on being a teacher. In fact, I was going to join the Peace Corps and travel the world and teach. And I, when I got out of college, I taught high school for a couple of years. Um, I uh, also set up a little bit of a, a tutoring service. So I was doing some tutoring on the side for the pre-meds at my undergrad, and they were getting into Yale and Johns Hopkins. And I thought, boy, I wonder what medical school I would get into because I'm the guy tutoring these guys. Um, so I kind of went into medicine really with the interest of being a teacher. And I had loved teaching young adults. Uh, I realized uh, once I was in medical school that my focus was wellness, not illness. So I tried to think about what could I do with young adults that's focused on wellness. Uh, and that's what brought me into OBGYN ultimately. Uh, and it's been an interesting road going along with that. Are you still currently seeing patients? I am, yeah. I work um, as a hospitalist, so a laborist, and really do patient care about three or four times a month. I have all these ideas in my mind about what women go through during pregnancy, but I also wonder how much support did women receive, especially last year when a lot of them had to deliver uh, without their loved ones around. Um... Really tough year, and I think part of it was a tough year because so much was unknown. In fact, I think even now as we, hopefully the pandemic is going down and we're talking about vaccination, again, so much is unknown and it's a kind of a tough, tough place to be in. But uh, I do think we're ultimately very um, lucky uh, in that influenza tends to target young, healthy women. Um, women who are pregnant and get influenza have about a 500% higher chance of dying than a non-pregnant woman. So influenza really goes after pregnant women. Luckily, COVID doesn't seem to be that severe for pregnant women. We are starting to see some data about complications, but it doesn't seem to be as severe as we had thought originally. I think it was very, it was the uncertainty though that was very scary for patients. Um, I'm starting to see relax, uh, guidelines relaxed a little bit. So we're having more partners and family members that can have contact. Um, a good friend of mine delivered and he had to be isolated from the grandparents for about four months. Uh, the grandparents have finally been able to hold their grandchild, right? So that's really tough on them, mm -hmm. especially also if you think about the new mom without having her family to help with the baby, that's really tough on her as well. Um, I think these are challenging times. That's, that's really what I can say, but it looks as though we're getting further to the end than the beginning. That's great news to hear. I mean, like I said, I couldn't imagine what it would have been like for women to be, you know, in the hospital by themselves, which is normally a, such a moment to be celebrated. What kind of complications do you tend to see in uh, during a woman's pregnancy? 
I see mainly patients on the on the inpatient side as a hospitalist. So I'm there for labor and delivery. But, you know, believe it or not, even in this day and age, there are a lot of women that don't get prenatal care. Their only point of contact with healthcare is when they drop into the hospital at different points in their pregnancy with a complication. So the luxury I have that a lot of my um, outpatient uh, colleagues don't have is I often have time. I'm often there for a longer shift and I have time to talk to patients. You can't always have time, but sometimes you really do. Uh, I see a lot of times in an office practice, doctors are very quick to write a prescription and go on to the next patient. I have time to talk to patients. So some of the most common things that come up that we see, hyperemesis, so nausea and vomiting in pregnancy, acid reflux is very common that we see in patients, high blood pressure in pregnancy is very common. All of these things have a lifestyle medicine component. And luckily, we get the time to start talking about these things without just writing a script and moving on. Our mutual friend, Dr. Nancy Erickson, who speaks very highly of you, um, kind of walked me through her work as well. And she kind of is more, she's involved from the time of conception through the time of delivery. And yourself as a hospitalist, you sort of pick up from uh, labor and delivery. And then do you continue to stay in touch with your patients? Is that what you're saying that you have more time for that? No, it's actually during that acute hospital visit. I've had a number of times patients with anemia, who only thought they had to take their iron pills three times a day. I do have to tell you one patient quite uh, severe, uh, the iron pills were causing such reflux, she actually tore her esophagus from the vomiting of that. Yeah, it was really severe. She had a bleed in her esophagus. And I worked with her for a while during that admission. She was in the hospital for several days, really trying to talk about natural whole food plant-based sources of iron and folate that she could have. She still needed the pills, but she was able to taper off them and then get away from the side effects. So you were talking about hypertension and other complications, the acid reflex, all of these can be prevented with lifestyle, improving lifestyle choices. And so you are, and you continue to be an educator in this way. Do you give lectures or talks for, uh, in general, uh, for groups of women? So I'm working on a number of things. And, and, you know, I, Nancy Erickson's a fantastic example of somebody who, with our member interest group, we were able to connect her with a couple of projects that she's just a star on, I have to say. She's the lead editor. I just want to make this announcement to everybody. This fall will be the first textbook of women's health lifestyle medicine. And Nancy's the lead editor on that. Mm-hmm. So it'll really be a, a, a reference people all around the world can use to turn to instead of going quickly to a pill or a procedure for patients and really think about the lifestyle courses that they can do. Um, Nancy and myself are both going to be speaking at the American College of OBGYN annual meeting. She's going to talk about postpartum care, and I'm going to talk directly to doctors about the importance of exercise. So we're going to be putting on like a TED Talk kind of performance. With oh my goodness, that is awesome. So um, just to kind of remind some of our listeners, Dr. Nancy Erickson is in Houston, and she actually came out to Dallas and spoke to a group of, of women here. Um, and she basically answered all sorts of questions uh, that women have about, you know, everything from pregnancy to how to manage menopause. And um, she was so well received. So anything that she does, I'm interested in. So... So we talked about, and I've mentioned here on the podcast, that there is the possibility that the American College of Lifestyle Medicine's Lifestyle Medicine Conference will happen not far from us, probably about 50 miles from us here in Dallas, 
Um, what is that looking like? Will you be one of the speakers for that as well? So we're going to now have our women's health group for the third year in a row have our own workshop. So the meeting will be happening um, over several days. We'll be doing a specifically a women's health workshop. And uh, I've spoken in the past this year, I'm going to be the organizer and the MC with Cindy Geyer of the meeting. Um, but in the past, we've often focused on topics that are, I guess I would say a little bit more academic, like epigenetics and how um, fetal cells are programmed. This year, what we're really going to focus on is uh, living your best life, really talking to women about issues that come up where they'd really like to make their life even better and how the power of lifestyle medicine can help those issues. Uh, Dr. Jessica Krant is coming from New York City. She is one of the only board certified dermatologists in lifestyle medicine. So she's going to be really talking about how improving your diet, sleeping better can really improve a lot of dermatologic issues for patients. Yeah. Um, that's going to be wonderful. Dr. Amy Commander from Mass General is going to come and speak about cancer prevention. She's got a whole program for breast cancer survivors at Mass General in Boston and talking about that as well. I am just so excited, you know, so I'm a lay person, but uh, it's a it's amazing how excited I am about medicine, especially the approach of lifestyle medicine. I was always interested in trying to see how I can improve my health. And out of all the things that I tried, holistic and natural kind of remedies and things like that, food was not on the top of my list. Can you believe that? <laughs> it happens to all of us, right? We think we know things that we don't know and we learn. And so this conference is open to everyone pretty much, although we're gonna see a lot of physicians, dietitians, experts in the field, health coaches. Um, and I've attended, I attended 2019. Is that when you also became board certified? I became board certified in 2019. And I think I've been going for a couple of years before then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I had, I attended, my husband and I decided to split up so that we can get as much exposure to the different workshops. But I attended the exercise as medicine one, along with a variety, one called Ikigai, but I learned so much. And then of course I come back and I wanna share the information with other people. Um, so I'm really looking forward to the women's health one. You no, know, Maya, I did wanna make sure I, I, there are two more speakers I really wanted to, to mention. And I think one of them you may know is Dr. Rashmi Kudesia. Do you know oh, her as well? Yes. Yeah. I don't know if she's been on your program, but she'd be wonderful to speak. Uh, as an infertility specialist, there's so much we can do if you know someone in your life who wants to get pregnant, things that they can do in preparation for that to really optimize their chances. Yes, you know, when we've had endocrinologists on the show, those episodes do so well. Dr. Kadesha is a um, fertility endocrinologist or specialist, um, whereas and, uh, the other individual that I um, spoke with specializes in thyroid issues and diabetes. I feel also that when we have experts like yourself, physicians who really are trained in lifestyle medicine and the power of nutrition, people are more likely to then reach out either to you or to a physician and feel a little bit more comfortable about the questions that they should ask and things like that. And which actually brings me to to ask you, what are some of the things you wish your patients knew ahead of time? I think the most important thing is exactly as you said, to come prepared to the visit. I think um, sometimes what we uh, have seen are that we the doctors get caught up in uh, the time constraints and maybe a specific issue. And sometimes there's things that we don't take the time to talk about. And I think um, unfortunately with the way office practice works, uh, sometimes we don't have all the time, but we could at least address the top priorities. 
and maybe make another visit to go over some of the other issues. But what we wouldn't want to do is kind of sweep things under the rug and miss out on really important things that we need to talk about. Have you ever noticed the difference between some patients that are very involved in their health and know where they stand and the things they need to do, and then other patients that you know, may not have a single idea of what questions to ask and what the next step is towards improving their health? And, you know, it's really, really hard to address that. And unfortunately, well, part of the problem is there's so much bad information out there. There's so much, I guess, what I'd call is clickbait out there on the Internet. So how do we get people to, to have a, a source where they could get some good information and then come with, the, with questions that will really help their health? So what are some of the things that women can do um, to really optimize their pregnancy, to, to feel good during those nine months? And what form of exercise can they do during a pregnancy? You know, one of the, I'll start with exercise because I think it's really, really important. We actually, um, a paper that we're working on, we looked on some data where they actually surveyed OBGYNs and the OBGYNs didn't know the recommendations for exercise in pregnancy. Uh, and they certainly, boy, when we think about us as OBGYNs, we're probably not getting sleep. Uh, we're not exercising well and maybe not eating a good diet ourselves. And, you know, we know that patients respond to those cues. We know that they can kind of, take a look at maybe the lines under our eyes and, and uh, know that we're not sleeping ourselves. So I think that's something that we really have to change if we can. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I wish that more patients, the, the CDC recommendations are that pregnant women get 150 minutes a week of moderate exercise. And uh, we find that probably only about 15 or 20% of women are actually doing that right now. I wonder why that is. Well, I think part of it is the doctors and part of it is cultural pressures. Often there are family members or who are really, they think that they're making the pregnancy better by having the patient rest. And unfortunately, there are some outmoded medical recommendations for some conditions. Uh, women's exercise and women's activity doesn't seem to make the pregnancy outcomes any worse. Right. I wonder if there are any kind of support groups or Facebook groups where women gather, you know, power walked or did yoga together, pregnant women, that is. I, there probably are some groups like that. Yeah, and I believe you, did you have, was it, am I pronouncing right, Dr. David Sagbeer on, who runs yes. the walk group? Yeah, I had him yes. on your show recently. And what he's done has been a fantastic thing across the country, the walk with the doc group. Um, and I think that would be something that could fit in really, really well. I will tell you, I'm not sure about your community, but here in Southern California, Zumba classes for pregnant women have been very popular. And I think that's a great way to get some exercise in. Well, look at that. I wasn't familiar. There was a time when I lived in San Diego, so I'm very familiar. I was very outdoorsy, very involved in cycling and hiking. And, you know, it really, the surroundings really affect how we live our lives, don't they? But I'm, I'm also very blessed to be near a green area where I power walk, because that's my thing. I love to be in nature. As you can see, I, my book there, um, Forest Bathing, is my, my thing to do as well. Uh, to really calm my energy because I tend to, you know, stress. So, and what about um, foods uh, during a pregnancy? Do you have any kind of recommendations? Well, a couple of things I, I would say, uh, you know, one of the a um, uh, little bit of a, maybe a, a, a pet peeve I have sometimes is uh, I've uh, seen some of my less educated patients come in with bag of Doritos and a diet Coke. And they say to me, but doc, I'm taking my vitamin every day, right? Isn't oh. that enough? And I think it's really, really unfortunate uh, to, to really correct that mis misperception. We know that the most important nutrients are in whole plant-based foods. We know that. And so that's something we really need to encourage. We also know that 91% of Americans don't get the very meager CDC recommendations mm -hmm. of 
two cups of fruits and three cups of vegetables a day. So that's really the foundation, of course, that we need to start with is trying to see that our patient can get adequate supplies of fruits and vegetables. We encourage a lot of women for a variety of reasons to take folic acid, but we know that plant-based folate is a better source of the nutrients that we need to prevent birth defects um, and complications in pregnancy. Is there anything a woman can do to kind of minimize that um, morning sickness? Yeah, so that's really important. You know, um, you probably in your, your audience is probably pretty aware of Dr. Michael Greger, mm -hmm. uh, the work that he's done. And he has a whole set of videos on his um, on his website, nutritionfacts.org. He does a fascinating talk about hyperemesis. And it does seem as though hyperemesis is really related to meat consumption. Uh, it's kind of a natural, almost I would say a, a biological defense because we know that um, meat is the easiest way to get a bacterial infection in your body. In pregnancy, to protect the woman and to protect the fetus, women seem to kind of push back a little bit. I've often, uh, when I've talked to patients about that nausea and that morning sickness, and by the way, we've had patients so severe, Maya, it's really intense. They've had to be on uh, chemotherapeutic levels of anti-nausea medications in pregnancy. Wow. Yeah, it's gotten that severe where they've really gotten emaciated and dehydrated from the hyperemesis. Um, but often when I talk to them about that, they'll say to me, boy, come to think of it, it's when I smell meat that really starts to trigger that, that response. Um, so trying to kind of alter their diet to more whole plant-based foods, I think does help. Uh, obviously with lifestyle medicine, when you need medication, we can certainly provide medications. But patients, uh, one thing I did want to come back to is the most important thing in pregnancy is to stay hydrated. It's really, really critically important, right? Yes. All the foods and the pills, sometimes we can do go away with those, but we can never get away from the hydration. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm glad you brought that up because I was recently listening to another talk. Um, this individual, who is also a physician, talked about two things that she struggled with when she breastfed. What, one was dehydration and constipation. Those are really, really interesting and important issues. And I, I'll, I'll make a little bit of a side note. You know, the recommendation um, for all of us to drink more water does exist, but there is a caveat. Um, we often eat processed foods, which have most of the water and all, almost all of the fiber removed. If we get back to whole plant-based foods, we probably, the average person doesn't need to drink six to eight glasses of water a day mm -hmm. if you're eating fresh whole foods. And we also know that 97% of Americans don't get enough fiber, right? So if we can correct those issues, I think we'll minimize many of the other issues as well. Um, but I would encourage, yeah, breastfeeding women absolutely to stay well hydrated. So stay hydrated, make sure you consume enough fiber um, because you can probably be prone to having, you know, to uh, struggling with constipation. Um, what about, uh, so you've mentioned uh, preeclampsia. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is? And I don't know if it could be related, but can you talk about complications that may come as a result of having weight issues during a pregnancy? Absolutely. You know, we know that um, most of us in America, unfortunately, are unhealthy. Uh, and when we enter prenatal care, we often are just like anyone else. We bring that, um, that lack of health into our prenatal care. Um, Preeclampsia does seem to be strongly related to our diet and to our weight. Um, and it's quite common. We, in some studies, up to one in seven um, pregnant women will develop it. What I sometimes tell patients is if we let pregnancies go on long enough, that incidence of preeclampsia would just keep going up and up and up. Um, 
So it can be quite, quite severe for patients. We have had patients have to go into intensive care for their preeclampsia as well. One of the things I find interesting when I look at the medical recommendations about preeclampsia, it very quickly goes to pills and procedures. Um, but we do know that getting better sleep can help with preeclampsia. In fact, there was a fascinating study I saw recently. Are you aware of what CPAP is? Yes. Uh, it's a breathing machine for patients. And it's more co often commonly needed in um, obese men. Often we uh, kind of overlook the fact that there are many women who have sleep apnea as well. But they did a trial on uh, women who were at high risk of developing preeclampsia. And they showed that with CPAP, they could prevent preeclampsia. So something about that airway obstruction at night seems to cause the blood pressure to spike up and that development of preeclampsia. And CPAP is perfectly safe and effective in pregnancy. It's really just keeping the airway open. The other is fiber. There have been a number of studies looking at dietary fiber preventing preeclampsia. And we think that has something to do with the ability of fiber to sweep out some of the toxins from our body and keep us healthy. I was wondering about that. Is it when, so if you're struggling with preeclampsia, what is happening to the body? And is there like tremendous inflammation happening as well? Boy, I wish we knew. If you and I could answer that today, <laughs> we could go get the Nobel Prize in Stockholm tomorrow. Uh, no one has a perfect <laughs> answer. Um, what we do know about um, both preeclampsia, and I'll mention as a side disease, gestational diabetes, is that something happens with the placenta during pregnancy that indicates that that woman is at risk of developing those diseases later in life. Um, so we do know that roughly half of women who have preeclampsia within the next five years will develop chronic hypertension tension and need to be on meds. So it gives us a tremendous opportunity to start the lifestyle changes and stave off the disease for the future. It's almost like that Jimmy Stewart movie, It's a Wonderful Life. We get a little <laughs> glimpse of the future and we can go back to the present and fix things. Right. You know, we always like to talk about prevention as well. So I guess one of the major goals for women who are planning to have children is to maybe optimize their health at the beginning so that you can have a wonderful pregnancy and prevent some of these complications, especially you mentioned gestational diabetes. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, one of the groups that I'm very, very happy we got reinvigorated is the California Preconception Healthcare Council. So we have in every state in America, there's a group working on what we call preconception health. Mm -hmm. We know that if we had really good preconception health, getting people optimized, both men and women before pregnancy, we could probably have as much impact as all the prenatal care that we do today. So we'd love to really kind of optimize that for patients. We've also, we're working on right now what we call our interconception care guidelines. So that is often we'll have recognized something in the pregnancy, the woman's going through her postpartum care. And unfortunately, sometimes we don't see those women for the next two or three years until they're pregnant again. And again, we missed a window to really help that woman come into the next pregnancy with optimal health. Mm -hmm. So these are both really, really important issues that we need to address. Mm -hmm. I hope I answered your question. I know I went off yes. a little bit there. No, I love that you brought up the um, the preconception area. I think you had already a, uh, the preconception healthcare council. And so does that mean then that they have a website with resources? So how do you outreach to women to provide this information? Yes, yeah, so we do have a website, Every Woman California, um, mm -hmm. that one can go to. Um, and we have this information released. We have handouts uh, for uh, we have about 20 of the most common conditions that come up, anything from preeclampsia to smoking cessation. 
Um, uh, we have both patient-facing handouts in English and Spanish, and we also have handouts for providers as well. Um, what we often find is that um, women are in uh, low-resource settings when they come and they have questions. So if anybody involved, the social worker, um, you know, maybe a family member could give the woman some of this information, we find that we can help them a lot. Mm, this is great stuff. I'm so glad that you're bringing it up, and I'll make sure I'll include the links in the show notes. And how important is it to then have the postpartum visits? It's really, really important. Unfortunately, it's also a really high stress time for patients, right? They have a newborn baby. Uh, sometimes there are family issues at home. They sometimes have other children. And I think it becomes really tough for women sometimes to make those postpartum visits. I don't have a magic answer as to how to get everybody back to the postpartum visit, uh, but it's really an important concern. I can tell you the American College of OBGYN has refined its guidelines for women postpartum. Some women just need one visit. Some women need a whole year's worth of care to address maybe substance abuse or depression. And we're really expanding the kind of care that we give now. Mm -hmm. That's what I was wondering um, about the visits. It's sort of like you're, you want to kind of evaluate where the patient is after the delivery. Just like you said, you know, there might be some mental health issues or maybe just checking in on how she's managing, um, connecting with her child as well. Is that, does that come in as well? Those are really, really important visits. And I think one real gap in care, because I've worked a little bit, we did a publication with some of our pediatric colleagues, is that transition of care. Family practitioners often will see the whole family. And I think in, in the right setting, that can be the ideal visit because you can be talking about the mother and baby. And if we can, our hope is if we can address some of the uh, diet and lifestyle changes at the preconception visit, it'll carry through and maybe the whole family will change their care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the transition of care, what you just said, kind of reminded me of, um, I was an elementary school teacher, and so you invest a whole school year with these children, 20, 25 students, and you know, you're invested in them, you're guiding them, and then you have to transition them out <laughs> to another grade, right? To another educator, another teacher, and then you're just hoping that they'll catch those things that you've noticed are very important so that the individual can continue to grow. And sometimes just in medicine in general, it just kind of, a lot of information gets lost from one physician to the other. I got to tell you, Maya, one of the things I was thinking of just now when you and I were talking, I remember when I was in second grade, towards the end of the year, the third grade teacher popped her head in and just said hi to us. And it just, <laughs> just made things better. So I worked in a, a community clinic in San Diego for a while, and we would have the pediatricians working side by side with us. And sometimes we'd bring them into the postpartum visit and just say hi. Well, look at that. That's great. That's exactly what uh, I think we need as uh, patients in general. Um, is there anything else? I, I want to make sure that we cover a few things. You mentioned the textbook that's coming out in, uh, in the fall. Very exciting. That's something to look forward to. Um, and then, oh, you, uh, there's the women's workshop. I don't know if we, Living Your Best Life. That's the one that's coming up for the conference. I've got one more plug. I just realized one more speaker, and this might be the most important speaker of all. Uh, Dr. Michelle Tollefson from Denver is going to be speaking as well, uh, and she is doing a talk on sex and lifestyle medicine. So, so often, uh, either we don't talk about these things, or when we do, uh, uh -huh. we tell people to take pills, or maybe, you know, it can't work. But we know 
that plants and better sleep and, you know, diet can really help these things. So she's going to give us all the evidence and educate us on these issues. You know, we are affected by the foods that we eat and whether we get enough, you know, enough rest. So I can see how our sex life is impacted. What other things can we look forward to uh, in terms of the conference? Well, the conference, I think, is going to be great. There are going to be um, all, uh, not I couldn't say all, but several of the former U.S. Surgeon Generals are going to be speaking at wow. the ACM conference. So we're really getting, uh, I don't know if you were there, was it last year Prince Charles himself gave us a video address at the Lifestyle Medicine Conference? Oh my because goodness. the importance of lifestyle medicine in Britain is, become, is in, increasing, growing. So I thought, boy, how are we going to top Prince Charles next year? And I think about five of the former U.S. Surgeon Generals. Well, well, it'll get up there. I don't know. Everybody might have their preferences. <laughs> really going to be. Uh, I think lifestyle medicine is really entering the mainstream, and it's really changing uh, healthcare. There's a doc I work with very frequently who's at Kaiser in California, which is probably the biggest healthcare provider in California, and that is the single greatest collection of lifestyle medicine docs in the country. Is at Kaiser. I think they're really changing their care model right now. So Dr. McHugh, a lot of times I post questions in several of the Facebook groups that I'm part of. In terms of, I want to gather questions from the average individual. What would you ask a cardiologist? What would you ask a, um, an endocrinologist and things like that? And what I find and impresses me, I always have to tell my husband this, is so many individuals are really becoming informed. Yeah, yeah. So when content is put out by physicians, when videos are put out, people are teaching each other and they're becoming um, self-empowered in terms of taking control of their health. So if I were to ask a group of people on Facebook, what would you do to reduce your hypertension? Uh -huh. They know what Dr. Gregor has said about it. They know what Dr. Barnard has said. So, so many people are understanding the power of nutrition, but also, like you just said, lifestyle medicine. And which is why it's so exciting for myself, say, as a layperson to be part of it all, because it, it helps me. I'm educating myself, but then I'm helping to also share um, the, the message that there are many things that we can do to empower ourselves. And Lifestyle Medicine, American College of Lifestyle Medicine offers so many resources. And also there's a directory. Um, what sort of information can an, a person who's not a member obtain? And why would we want to encourage people to become members of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine? So uh, I think there's a lot of growth and transition happening right now within the college. I think it's uh, taking off, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, what we are working on in women's health is we're working on patient-facing handouts for a variety of conditions, and we're going to make those available to the public. I believe um, the, uh, the organization has said patient-facing handouts will make them free and available to everyone. Provider-facing handouts will make that a resource for our members. So as I talked about our fall workshop, we're talking about uh, dermatology, sexuality, fertility, and cancer. I'm going to ask each of those speakers to make a patient-facing handout, and we're going to make those freely available for anybody. So this is something you could either have for yourself, or if you have a friend who might have an issue, you could pass it on to your friend. Um, we've already made a uh, whole food plant-based MyPlate, uh, both for adults and for children, so that you can look at a MyPlate that really represents the best food ever and use that to change your dietary patterns. Oh, I love it. I think that many patients are willing to make a change if they're just kind of taught step by step what it is that they need to do and maybe not try to do too much. Because I know sometimes um, when I even speak to a family member of mine about all the components, the pillars of lifestyle medicine, 
they may they may think that you're asking too much of yourself this is way too much but no i i think it's just take what you can begin wherever you can if it's you know exercising first walking for a mile or just start to incorporate more plant-based foods, eat more plants, but not try to do too much because then you're back to square one, <laughs> square one, which is you're overwhelmed. Well, I think, I think this is in large part due to people like yourself and Dr. Riz, right? I mean, you're out there giving people information they can trust. And I, what I hear a lot from patients is they don't know who to trust. You know, they're hearing about somebody going keto at the gym and cutting out fruit if they're diabetic. But I think if you're giving people the right information and they find a source they can trust, that's how we're going to change things. Absolutely. And then and trust happens like this through conversations like this. I mean, when I'm looking for a physician myself, I want to do a little bit of research. I want to hear that individual speak. I want to see what knowledge they have. And so the more that we learn about certain physicians, the more we're likely to kind of, you know, trust them, see, you know, seek their advice and things like that. Dr. McHugh, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? No, I think this is great. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. And I'm so glad you're having Dr. Commander come on your show. I'd love women's health to be a big part of your show. So let me know. We can we can give your patients and uh, your uh, audience more information. Definitely. You know, we have listeners from Mexico, in the UK, in Australia. People listen from all over. And of course, we know that lifestyle medicine is huge. It's everywhere. The goal is to kind of continue to share this information and, and feature uh, experts like yourself so that people can then know how to reach out. And by the way, that reminds me, um, how can people learn more about you? Um, do you have social media? Do you have a website? Yeah, so we have a couple things going on right now. Um, we did create the uh, Facebook group. Uh, just It's called Women's Health Lifestyle Medicine, all one long run-on word. Uh, anybody can join that group or Google for that group. We're creating that as an, as an open group. Um, I also have a Twitter account, which is Lifestyle Med Doc, M-E-D-D-O-C. Uh, people can follow. I post information on there uh, when I can. We're working on Instagram. We do have uh, Women's Health Lifestyle Medicine on Instagram, and we'd love to share more content there as well. Again, our goal is to really give people evidence-based good information that's out there for uh, to help them make decisions. Awesome. This Facebook group for the Women's Lifestyle Medicine I'm a member of, what can, um, if anybody can join, what could they expect to find in that uh, Facebook group? You know, what we're trying to do is we're, um, we're trying to find uh, recent studies that come out that really um, uh, give them a sort of a, a more straightforward approach. Sometimes studies are covered in Time Magazine or AP or something like that uh, that can give people something that they can digest and take home. But we're really only going to focus on evidence-based lifestyle medicine for people that can help them make some change in their lives. Wonderful. Wow, this has been so informative. Thank you so much. Is there kind of a final message um, that you'd like to give our listeners or maybe one step uh, how they can get started towards a healthier lifestyle? No, I guess I'd say that the, the most important thing is that there's an old, uh, I think it's an old Chinese quote, that a uh, journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. And I've just seen so much change. And I'm sure you've seen so much change. And everybody has gone through change. I myself lost about 90 pounds over a few years. It really took a long time. Didn't think I could do it. Of course, I was going the wrong direction originally. But that was just taking one step at a time towards that progress. Um, and, uh, you know, I think sometimes now, and you probably see it as well, when you look around and see people who've made these changes, you know, their skin is glowing. They're feeling better. They're happier. And this can all be a, a future that's possible for everybody. Thank you again, Dr. John McHugh. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Maya. Really appreciate your time. 
You've been listening to the Plant-Based DFW podcast show. If you like our content, please like, share, and leave a review. Our goal is to provide quality episodes to help support the community.